this week's Embedded Insiders, Brandon and Rich try to decide if datasheet specs are reliable, or if industry benchmarks are the only reasonably accurate measure of component performance without actually testing them yourself. Later, NVIDIA CEO Jensen Huang discusses how the company's pending acquisition of ARM is progressing, and what benefits the combined company will bring to each other and the market as a whole if the deal passes regulatory checks. Jensen also weighs in on the semiconductor shortage and how his company plans to keep pricing in check amidst supply and demand volatility. Finally, Tierra Oliver investigates the world of voice processing at the edge, where companies are adding more AI, but not necessarily more processing. Engineers from Knowles Intelligent Audio and Cadence Design Systems weigh in on how classical DSP is being used to make your smart virtual assistant as clever as possible at battery scale power consumption. And to bring things full circle, Tierra introduces MLPerf Tiny Inferencing Benchmark that can help voice recognition designers determine how fast, accurate, and low power their Edge AI stacks can be before building out complete systems. Hello and welcome to the Embedded Insiders. I'm Brandon Lewis, Editor-in-Chief of Embedded Computing Design, and I'm here with Rich Nass, who's the EVP of Embedded at Embedded Computing Design and Open Systems Media. How you doing, Rich? I'm doing okay. I picked up a cold over the weekend, but as my wife said, just get over it. Man flu. Exactly, exactly. So I'm soldiering on. Right. I've, I've never had a, according to all of my all of my partners throughout the years, I've never actually had the flu. I've always just had the man flu and I had needed to get over it. Uh, okay. I'm not sure what that means exactly, but okay. So what's going on at the smart home of Rich Nass? Well, I don't know if I've related the story. So I'll tell you the story about my smart television, which, you know, you certainly have to air quotes around the smart when you talk about a smart television, but a, I'm out there, uh, I guess it was about three weeks ago now, watching the Mets. And this, this is my outside TV. And I'm in Florida where the humidity can be brutal on an outside TV. But I'm watching the Mets and all of a sudden the screen goes black. So first thing you do is you hop on the Best Buy app. You're like, all right, how much is this going to cost me for a new TV? So I start shopping around for, well, actually, before I did that, I did all the usual stuff make sure the power was there and blah, 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 and all that stuff. Seemed to be that the TV was dead. So I chopped around a little bit for a TV. Uh, and then I happened to be on the phone with my brother the next day, telling him the story. And he says, you're an engineer, fix it. And I said, you know, that never even crossed my mind to fix the TV. Okay. So here I am with my TV and my wife and I up on the, up on the counter outside, we got the TV down and I put it on the table over a blanket and I took the back off and here I am with my multimeter and I figured out that it was not outputting power. There's basically two boards. There's a high power board and a low power board. The high power board was not outputting any power to the low power board. So I went on eBay and found that exact board to my TV. Bear in mind, the TV is about three years old and it's a high-end TV. I found the same board on eBay for 65 bucks. I said, it's worth a $65 risk if, it, if it, that's not what it is. Ordered the board, a week later the board arrived, popped the new board in, bang, I'm watching the Mets again. Life is good. Wow, look at you. They said that you'd been off in the media game way too long, but they were wrong. See, eight years of college finally came in handy. <laughs> right. <laughs> No, uh, mom, I'm just kidding. It's not a years ago. What do you think it was? You think it's just a blown capacitor or something? That's exactly what it was. Yep. And I mean, if I really want to get into it, I could have replaced the capacitor probably for a couple of bucks, but this was pretty easy to do once I, once I zeroed in on the problem. Man, those capacitors, I've had a few. <laughs> man, those capacitors, I've had a few, uh, you know, 
mid to low end electronics over the past couple of months go dead on me and it's the capacitors always. So we need our, we need our friends over um, in the analog and power segment to, to step their game up, it sounds like. Well, especially if you're going to be watching the TV in 100% humidity. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for sure. Or maybe 115 degree weather like we have here. But This is true. This is true. Anyway, speaking of that, how would you be able to tell from a data sheet if a capacitor or something like it would be able to stand up to your 100% humidity or 115 degree weather? Well, there are ratings like that. Um, where they are rated for humidity and altitude, but for a, a consumer device, you're not going to see that. And I actually just read that they are making televisions for that use, but you, you're going to pay big bucks. It's, it's just not worth it. It, it. Most consumer devices have become disposable and yeah. your average consumer would have thrown the TV away right. and, and bought a new one. Um, but, but no, I don't think that you're going to find that stuff on your average show data sheet. Well, what if you're an engineer and you're trying to figure out whether or not you want to use a processor or an operating system or whatever, uh, or if you're going to have to throw it away in a couple of years, then what do you do? Just well, trust the data sheet? Yeah, I think so. The data sheets, I don't think people lie about data sheets. You know, they misconstrue the information if, if I'm saying that right where you know to make it look like under certain conditions it works but under those conditions the the information's accurate in my opinion yeah I don't think it's I don't think it's <coughs> accurate I think that what what more often is the case is that the data sheet shows you some incredibly hypothetical lab generated scenario where you know, if everything is perfect and, you know, you do the hokey pokey, then this component, software or hardware, will perform this way. And, and in, in reality, that's just not, you know, it's just, it's not reality, right? Yeah, you're making me think of the miles per gallon specs that, right. that they put on cars. Right. My Chrysler never once has gotten 35 miles to the gallon, not for, not even in the first three weeks I drove it. We got to uh, park it on the top of the mountain. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah. So if you're, if you're an engineer or whatever, you know, obviously one of the ways that the industry over time has tried to combat this is through the use of benchmarks. And we've had benchmarks of all kinds, you know, over the years, Cormark, you know, uh, looking at, at, at processor benchmarks and then more specifically to the embedded space, uh, we had Embassy, EEMBC, uh, that was headed up by um, one of our friends, Marcus Levy, for a while. And actually, they have a new president um, now. Uh, but, but the Embassy benchmarks, which measured power consumption and performance on microcontrollers and other like embedded processors, was sort of a big deal for a while, but it, it kind of fell out of favor. It, did you stop hearing as much? Rich, about, um, about Embassy, and, and why do you think so? I've definitely stopped hearing a lot about Embassy. And to be honest, with, with all due respect to the Embassy folks, I don't think the engineering audience cares. It was a marketing thing. You know, they would put the benchmark up there, and people in the media like us bought into it, and it gave us something to write about. The I don't think the engineers really cared. Why is that? Because they knew what, what they were getting. They read the data sheets. And, you know, we just did some research on um, where you look for your answers um, for research for this kind of thing. And um, what came up over and over again was past experience. If, if, if I've used ST before, there's a really, really good chance I'm gonna use ST again. And, and that goes for any of the vendors. Um, just because some benchmark says I'm going to get 8% better performance, it isn't worth me switching an architecture. Well, I mean, nobody ever got fired for using IBM, right? I mean, if you've been using ST and you keep using ST, the boss isn't going to go, why the hell did you keep using ST, right? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot more to, to it than that because of the code base. But, but, but yeah, that's, that's definitely true. So if you are entering now a new 
technology area, like let's say AI, where the code base potentially needs to be redone or, or you're, you're building it from maybe the ground up or close to the ground up or at least extensions to your code base uh, or branches. Um, does the viability of a benchmark come back into play because there's so nope. many different, no, why not? Nope, because I am choosing my processor in an area like that where it's new and I'm not an expert, I'm doing air quotes again, around expert. Uh, I'm going with, with the guy who's, who's gonna lead me further down the path. And some of these people like NXP are providing so much of the code to help me get there. Again, having that done for me is much more valuable than the eight, 10% of, of the performance gain that you'll see in a benchmark. Okay, but how do you know at this point? Isn't it a little bit early to, to be able to tell that NXP in fact is getting you that much further down the road with the code that they already provide in something like their EIQ um, because you don't know where you're gonna end up or? No, I don't think it's too early. I, I think it's, it's mature enough that we, we're able to make that decision at this point. So are you saying that you think a lot of the accelerators and stuff that are coming, you know, these DPUs and NPUs and all these things are just a little bit uh, so, you know, so much more marketing? No, I, I, I think they're very application specific. Right. Um, you know, I mean, look at NVIDIA and, and, the, and the amount of code that, that they provide. Um, they pretty much do the design for you. Right. Um, you know, with the, you know, they have the GPU, you know, there's the TPU from Google. Um, that's the way I would go. And if some benchmark said, if you switch to this thing that you might not have heard of, or you might've heard of, and you're going to get 10% higher performance. And my boss is saying, you know, this has to be done in six weeks. Yeah. I'm going with the guy who's going to help me get to the six weeks. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there is, there's certainly a, there's certainly a lot of risk um, going into something that's application specific if you're on tight timelines and it's not proven. And you're not a huge company, you know, in which case we'd probably just be building an ASIC anyway, right? Um, well, all that being said, so apparently, apparently Rich won't be using this at all, but there's this new, there's this new benchmark out that was developed by ML Commons in conjunction with Embassy called ML Perf Tiny, and this is ML Perf for, for inferencing. Um, the ML Perf Are you a proponent of this? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about all the downsides. Let me hear why I sh let me hear why I'm wrong. I was getting there. So I, I do think, I do think that it's, I think it's valuable right now. I think it's valuable right now in the industry because there are so there's still a cloud of confusion around machine learning and artificial intelligence. I do think that new branches of people's code bases are being written. Um, and I think that it's valuable to start, it's a, it's a good opportunity, it's a good fork in the road to take a step back and say, you know what, is this architecture, the architecture that we're gonna be using to carry us forward? You know, maybe we've been using ST for the last 10 years, but you know, maybe the way that we're gonna be developing our products, you know, in, in this vein or that vein or this way or that way, is better suited to NXP, you know, over the next five to 10 years, if we're going to go really deeply into some, you know, computer vision enabled, uh, you know, object, you know, product inspection on a factory line, or if we're going to be doing something really specifically related to voice, maybe we need to do something that's more suited towards, you know, cadence tensilico or hi-fi um, DSPs than whatever else we were using. Um, and yeah, those are application specific, but I do think that right now it's, it's a breaking point, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an inflection point and more so than it was with IOT, you know, IOT was doing a lot of let's just get really low power. Well, that was sort of, you know, we were always trying to get really low power. Um, and let's add some connectivity to our SOCs. Well, yeah, but you know, that was things were trending that way anyway. Now we're talking about 
different types of compute that are fundamentally, you know, change the way that you're processing a workload. You know, if you're throwing in an accelerator that's kind of like a DSP and kind of like a GPU, but not really either of those things, um, you know, that's that's going to have significant ramifications moving forward. And I understand that you don't want to do, you know, for eight to 10% performance, but some of these new architectures are claiming orders of magnitude, you know, like multiple plural orders of magnitude, more performance if you do it that way. And if that's the difference between doing edge AI on a battery powered device versus one that's not, I do think it's, it's worth taking a look. And unfortunately, because the data sheets tell you, you know, if it's sub zero and, you know, there's no wind and, you know, all of these other things in the lab, you get this type of performance, there's no way for you to quickly evaluate apples to apples, what you're going to get from an NVIDIA plus an NXP plus, or versus an NXP plus an S, or versus an ST versus an microchip versus on and on and on and on. So I do think it, it fills a gap. But the other thing that it does, this MLPerf tiny inference I'm talking about in particular, um, on the one hand, it's a little, it's a negative because it's very open, it's very flexible. On the other hand, it's positive because the benchmark is architected such that you can evaluate, it's, it's a full stack and they have a, a reference benchmark that is, I think it in fact is an ST. But the full stack of the reference allows you to evaluate different parts of the bench uh, of your system. So you could be looking at the AI framework that was used. You know, do you have a customized framework or are you just using um, uh, NVIDIA's TensorFlow or compilers or operating systems? So I do think that that's additional layers of benefit on top of just, just the hardware, the fees and speeds, because really, Moving into the more system level benchmark, that's what the engineers at the end of the day care about. Really, you know, how fast the processor runs or how efficiently it runs does have a big implication on your design, but it's, we all care about what the system does, not what the components do. In the, in the time it took you to explain to me why I should look at the benchmark, I finished my design. <laughs> Next. Brandon and NVIDIA CEO Jensen Huang discuss the ongoing acquisition of ARM and NVIDIA's strategy admits the global semiconductor shortage. So Jensen, what can you tell us about the progression of the ARM deal? And also, if and when it's complete, where do you see value being generated for ARM, NVIDIA, and the end market? Well, we're going through the regulatory approval and it takes about 18 months uh, and the process typically goes uh, U.S. Uh, shortly uh, engaged first, and then uh, the EC, and then uh, and then China last. That's the typically the typical journey. And um, uh, Mellanox took about 18 months or close. Uh, I expect this one to take about 18 months. Uh, so that that makes it uh, early next year, later this year, early next year. And so, so I, I I'm uh, I'm confident about about the. Uh, uh, about the the uh, the transaction, uh, the regulators are looking for: uh, is this good for competition? Is it pro-competitive and brings innovation to the market? Uh, does it uh, uh, does it give customers more choice? Uh, does it give customers more uh, more offerings uh, and more choice? And and you could see that that on first principles because our companies are completely complementary. They build CPUs, we build GPUs and DPUs. They don't build GPUs really, not for deep, and they don't build TPUs. And so, so I, think, I think our companies are complementary, and so we'll bring, by nature, um, uh, innovations that, that come as a result of companies that, that uh, come together uh, that, that offer complementary things. And, and so, so um, I, you know, it's like, it's like ketchup and mustard, you know, coming together. If we combine NVIDIA and ARM, uh, Arm's R&D scale will be much larger. As you know, Arm is a, is a big company. Arm's not a small company, but Nvidia is much bigger. Our R&D budget is many, many times larger than Arm, and so our combi our combination will give them more R&D scale. It would give them uh, technology that that they don't have the ability to build themselves or or uh, the scale to build themselves, like all of the artificial intelligence expertise that we have, 
And so we can bring uh, those capabilities through ARM to its market. And, and as a result of that, we will offer ARM customers uh, more technology choice, better technology, more advanced technology. And that ultimately is great for competition because it allows uh, ARM's licensees to create even better products, um, uh, more vibrant products and better leading edge technology, which in the end market would give even the end market more choice. And so that's ultimately uh, the, 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 the fundamental reason of competition is customer choice. More vibrant innovation, more R&D scale, uh, more R&D expertise brings customers more choice. So that I think is at the, at the core of it. And uh, for us, uh, it brings to us a very large ecosystem of developers, which NVIDIA as, comp as a company, because we're an accelerated computing company, developers drive our business. And so with, with 15 million more developers, we have three, almost 3 million developers today, the 15 million developers would develop new software that ultimately would create value for our company. Our technology through their channel creates value for their company. And so the combination is really a win-win. Obviously, even before talks of the acquisition of ARM, NVIDIA partnered with ARM using their technology, supporting their technology, but also Intel and x86 technology, as well as a variety of others. So if and when the ARM deal goes through, how is that going to change the way that you interact with other players in the market. And this Grace CPU could change things as well. So uh, where and how do you see your relationship with these players uh, changing moving forward? I think the future world is very diversified. It will be x86, it'll be ARM, it'll be big CPU, small CPU, edge CPU, data center CPU, supercomputing CPU, lots and lots and lots of CPUs, enterprise computing CPU, lots and lots of CPUs. I think the world is very diversified. There is no one answer. We, our strategy uh, is we will continue to support uh, the x86 CPUs in the markets that we serve. We don't serve every market, as you know. We serve high-performance computing. We serve artificial intelligence. We serve computer graphics. We serve the markets that we serve. And, and uh, for the markets that we serve, not every CPU is perfect, but some CPUs are quite ideal. And so depending on the market and depending on the application and the computing requirements, we will use uh, the right CPU. Sometimes the right CPU is uh, Intel x86. For example, we have 140 laptops. The vast majority of them are Intel CPUs. Uh, we have our DGX uh, system. We need a lot of PCI Express. Uh, it was really great to use uh, the AMD CPU. In the case of 5G base stations, uh, Marvell's CPUs are ideal and they're based on ARM. Uh, cloud hyperscale, uh, um, uh, uh, Ampere Computing's uh, Ultra uh, CPU is really excellent. And Graviton 2 is excellent, it's fantastic. We support those. Uh, in Japan, Fujitsu's uh, CPU is incredible for supercomputing. We'll support that. Uh, so different, different types of CPUs are designed for different applications. The, the, the CPU we designed has never been designed before. No CPU has ever been able to achieve the level of memory bandwidth uh, and memory capacity that we have designed for. It is really designed for big data analytics. Uh, it's really designed for the state of the art of artificial intelligence. Uh, and then meanwhile, uh, there's so many different you know, uh, markets and edges and enterprise and this and that, and we'll just support, we'll support the, uh, uh, the CPUs that are out there. So we're, I, believe, I believe the future is really about diversity. I believe the future is about variability and uh, customization and those kind of things. And so ARM is really a great strategy for us, and x86 will remain an excellent strategy for us. I assume you're aware of the ongoing semiconductor shortage, and I, I'm pretty sure that you're aware of the rising price points of your products that are selling out almost as soon as they hit the shelves. In particular, I'm thinking about GE Force and Quadro RTX cards that apparently are being gobbled up by crypto miners. Um, what are some of your plans to combat the volatility in supply and demand and then pricing that results from it? And how do you think the semiconductor industry in general is going to be able to deal with the shortage over the near, mid, and long term? 
Yeah, uh, our situation is very different than other people's situation, as, as you could imagine, because uh, NVIDIA doesn't make commodity components. We're not in the DRAM business or the flash business or CPU business. Our products is not commodity oriented. It is very specific for specific applications. And in the case of, in the case of GeForce, for example, uh, we haven't raised our price. Our price is basically the same and uh, we have our MSRP. The channel and market price is a little higher because demand is, is so strong. And so our strategy, our strategy is to, to alleviate, to reduce the, the hot demand uh, that, is, that is caused by crypto mining and create a special product CMP directly for the crypto miners. And, and if the crypto miners can buy directly from us a large volume of GPUs and they, they don't yield a GeForce and so they cannot be used for GeForce, uh, but they could use for crypto mining, it would discourage them from buying from the, uh, from the open market. The second reason is we, we introduced uh, a new GeForce configurations that reduces the hash rate, the crypto mining rate. We reduce the performance of our GPU on purpose so that if you would like to buy the GPU for gaming, you can. If you would like to buy a GPU for crypto mining, uh, uh, you, you, either you could buy the CMP version or if, if, uh, if, uh, if you really would like to use the GeForce to do it, unfortunately, the performance is going to be lower. And this way, it allows us to save our our GPUs for the mine, uh, for the gamers, and hopefully, as a result, the pricing will slowly come down. Uh, in terms of in terms of supply, it is the case that the world's technology industry has shaped reshaped itself. As you know, uh, cloud computing is growing very very fast, and in the cloud, the data centers are so big, you know, like this, and so the chips can be very very powerful. And so that's why die size, chip size continue to grow. And the amount of leading edge process it consumes is growing. Also, uh, uh, smartphones are using always state-of-the-art technology. And so, so the leading edge process consumption used to be uh, some distribution, but now the distribution is heavily skewed towards the leading edge. Technology is moving faster and faster. And, and so, so I, I think that, that um, uh, the shape of the, the semiconductor industry changed because of these dynamics. In our case, we have, we have demand that, that exceeds our supply. That, that is for sure. However, uh, as you saw from our uh, last quarter's performance, uh, we have enough supply to grow significantly year over year. We have enough supply to grow in Q2 as we guided, and we have enough supply to grow in second half. However, I do wish we had more supply. And so uh, we have enough supply to grow uh, and grow very nicely. Uh, and we were very, uh, very uh, thankful for, for uh, uh, all of our supply chain and all of our partners supporting us. Um, uh, but, but the world is gonna, going to um, uh, be reshaped because of cloud computing, because, because of the way that computing is done. So taking a tangent off that last question, GPUs, of course, are, they're big, um, but we also have seen the end of Moore's Law. Um, what do these dynamics all mean for die sizes, transistor scaling, and process nodes of your NVIDIA solutions moving forward? Since the beginning of time, the transistor time, die sizes have grown and grown and grown and grown and grown and grown and grown. And uh, I, uh, there's no question die sizes are increasing in size. And because technology cycles are increasing in pace, you know, new products are being introduced every year. There's no time to cost reduce into smaller die size. And if you look at, look at the trend, it is unquestionably to the upper right. And uh, uh, if you look at the application space that we serve, and I'm, I'm talking very specifically about us, if you look at our die size, uh, there are always radical limits now. And, and, um, uh, and, and, and the radical limits, the radical limits are, are pretty spectacular. I mean, they, they, um, we can't fit another transistor. And that's the reason why we have to uh, use uh, multi-chip packaging, of course. And we, use, we created NVLink to put a whole bunch of them together. And uh, there's all kinds of strategies to, uh, to uh, increase the effective die size. Uh, 
Now, one of the important things, Tim, is that, that uh, cloud data centers, so much of the computing experience you have on your phone is actually because of computers in the cloud. And the cloud is just, it's a lot bigger place. The data centers are larger, the, the electricity uh, uh, is more abundant, and the cooling system is better, and so the die size could be very large. And so that's, uh, I, think, I think die sizes will continue to grow and, and uh, uh, even as transistors continue to shrink. I'd be remiss if I didn't get a couple of your thoughts on the direction of the industry moving forward. Uh, firstly, with regard to AI and how that's going to be impacting the development and deployment of technology as we know it. Then separately, more broadly speaking, what the direction of computing and electronics industries are. As you know, artificial intelligence is software that can uh, write software. And using, using machines, uh, you could write software that no humans possibly can. It learns from an enormous amount of data using an algorithm, an approach called deep learning. Now, deep learning isn't just one algorithm. Deep learning is a whole bunch of algorithms, uh, some for image recognition, some for recognizing 2D to 3D, some of it for recognizing sequences, um, some of it for uh, reinforcement learning for robotics. There's a whole bunch of different algorithms that are associated with deep learning. Uh, but, but there's no question that we can now write software that we've not been able to write before. And so we can automate a whole bunch of things that we, could, we never thought were going to be possible in our generation. One of the most important things uh, is natural language understanding. It, it is now so good uh, that you could summarize an entire chapter of a, of a book or you could summarize a whole book. Uh, you could pretty soon summarize a movie. Watch the movie, listen to the words, and summarize it uh, in, a, in a really wonderful way. You can have questions and answers uh, with the natural language understanding model. And so AI has, has, has made tremendous breakthroughs, uh, but has largely been used by the internet companies, the cloud service providers and internet services. What we announced at, at, uh, uh, at GTC initially, and then what we announced at Computex is a brand new platform that's called NVIDIA Certified AI for Enterprise. And these are NVIDIA Certified Systems running a software stack we call NVIDIA AI Enterprise. And the software stack makes it possible for you to achieve world-class capabilities in uh, artificial intelligence uh, with a bunch of tools and pre-trained AI models. A pre-trained AI model is kind of like a, a new college grad. You know, they, went, they, they got a bunch of education, they're pre-trained, uh, but you still have to adapt them into your job, into your profession, into your, into your industry. But they're pre-trained and really, really smart. They're smart at image recognition or they're smart at language understanding or so on and so forth. And so we, we have this NVIDIA AI enterprise that sits on top of uh, a body of work that we collaborated with VMware on. And that sits on top of NVIDIA certified servers uh, from the world's leading computer makers. And these are high volume servers that incorporate uh, our Ampere generation data center GPUs and our Mellanox Bluefield DPUs. And so this whole stack essentially give you a cloud native. It's like having, having, a, having an AI cloud, but it's in your company. And it comes with a bunch of tools and capabilities for, for you to be able to adapt it. Now, how would you use it? Uh, healthcare would use it for uh, image recognition for radiology, for example. Uh, retail will use it for automatic checkout warehouses and logistics, moving of products and things like that, uh, tracking inventory automatically. And um, cities would use these uh, to monitor traffic. Uh, airports would, keep, would use it to, in, in case somebody lost the baggage, it would instantly find it. Uh, so there are all kinds of different applications for uh, uh, AI and enterprises. And, and I expect uh, enterprise AI uh, the, uh, what some people call the industrial edge, will be the largest opportunity of all. And uh, it'll be the largest AI opportunity. Uh, the computer industry is in the process of being completely reshaped. Artificial intelligence is one of the most powerful forces the computer industry had ever known. Imagine a, a computer that can write software by itself. What kind of software could it write? Uh, accelerated computing is really the path that people have recognized 
uh, is a wonderful path forward as Moore's Law or CPUs by itself uh, has come to an end. Uh, I believe that, that the, the, the confluence, the convergence of, of, um, uh, of cloud-native computing, uh, artificial intelligence, accelerated computing, and now finally the last piece of the puzzle, uh, private 5G or industrial 5G, is going to make it possible for us to put computers everywhere. They'll be in far-flung places, you know, uh, broom closets and, and uh, attics of, of uh, retail stores, and, and they'll be everywhere and will be managed by one pane of glass. And that one pane of glass will orchestrate all of these computers while they process data and, and uh, do artificial intelligence, um, uh, process artificial intelligence applications and make the right decisions on the spot. Now, Tierra Oliver explains how engineers from Knowles, Cadence, and ML Commons are working to advance the field of voice AI at the edge. If you've ever used a virtual assistant, you likely assumed you were talking to a device so smart it could answer almost any question you asked it. Well, actually, Amazon Echoes, Google Homes, and other devices like them usually have no idea what you're talking about. Yes, these devices leverage AI, but not in the way you'd expect. More often than not, the endpoint hardware simply detects a wake word or trigger phase and opens a connection to the cloud where natural language processing engines analyze the request, and in many cases, they don't just transmit a recording of your question. What was also beginning, uh, what, what it started off with, we would call it like a really weak uh, wake word at the edge, and then you would still have to send the entire recording up to the cloud to get a real solid second uh, detect, you know, that, oh yeah, someone actually said, okay, Hugo, or someone actually said the trigger word in question. That was Vikram Srivastava, Senior Director of IoT Marketing at Knowles Intelligent Audio in Palo Alto, California. Uh, and this would generate something that we call, uh, you know, true positive rate of detection and something that we also call false accepts. So if you didn't say Alexa, but you sent a message to the cloud anyway, hey, I heard Alexa, and then the cloud will say, no, you didn't, I, I double checked and, and you're wrong. And that was more because the edge devices were not that sophisticated enough um, uh, in their edge detection algorithms. In other words, many virtual assistants go to the cloud at least twice, once to verify that they're being addressed and a second time to respond to the request. Not so smart, huh? There are several drawbacks to this architecture. Sending requests to the cloud adds time and cost, and also opens potentially sensitive data to security and privacy threats. But the most limiting factor of this approach is that opening and maintaining these network connections gobbles up energy, which prevents voice AI from being deployed in entire classes of battery-powered products. Here lies the challenge. Many edge devices use power-efficient technologies that don't equip the performance to run AI locally, and therefore must send voice commands to the cloud, which incurs the penalties mentioned previously. In an effort to escape this cycle, audio engineers at Knowles and elsewhere are integrating the traditional efficiency of digital signal processors, or DSPs, with emerging neural network algorithms to increase intelligence at the edge. Uh, what we are seeing now uh, is that the edge devices are beginning to transition to the built-in uh, ecosystem. So now you can have up to you know, 10, 20, 30 commands, uh, which can be all uh, executed at the edge itself. So some of just the trigger word uh, improvements have happened uh, significantly uh, and, uh, and improved that, uh, you know, the, the, the TPR at the edge. The other uh, thing where audio DSPs actually played a, a big role and, you know, audio algorithms at the edge play a big role is, uh, is just the performance of detecting these trigger words in noisy environments, right? So is my vacuum cleaner running and I'm trying to command something uh, or, you know, you're in the kitchen, your exhaust fan is running and you're trying to talk to your Alexa unit. So this is what we call all uh, low SNR, which means the noise environment you're in is, is very high and our average talking. 
Knowles is a fabulous semiconductor company known for its high-end microphones and more recently for audio processing solutions. The latter began with Knowles' 2015 acquisition of Audience, a company founded on academic research in computational auditory scene analysis, or CASA, which studies how humans group and distinguish sounds that are mixed with other frequencies. That research led to specialized audio processors capable of extracting one clear voice signal from the background noise in the way Srivastava described. In addition to those audio processors, products like the Knowles AI Sonic Audio Edge processors integrate DSP IP cores from Cadence Design Systems. Cadence's Tensilica Hi Fi portfolio of audio DSPs has gained popularity in intelligent edge voice applications thanks to its energy efficiency and an ability to efficiently digital front end and neural network processing capabilities. Knowles deploys these Tensilica-based audio processing solutions into everything from single microphone AI Sonic smart mics to high-end devices like high-end Honeywell or Nest class thermostats where they manage anywhere from three to seven microphones. Front end is all digital. So the microphones are digital, the DSP is digital, uh, the communication between the, D, uh, the, the DSP to the host processor uh, is also digital. Uh, suppose it is a and Alexa device. So let's just say it's an Echo B device. So there's an ARM-based host processor in there uh, that then is running uh, um, uh, what I would say. There's a little Alexa stack. That's what makes it possible. So we can take that four microphone data coming in. We can do beamforming. We can find out which direction you're talking in. Uh, we can improve and amplify your signal only from that direction, ignore the noise from other direction, uh, and then uh, do some other noise suppression as well. Uh, and then, um, you know, detect, uh, you know, the trigger word accurately. Um, uh, you know, we, uh, you know in, in a well-tuned system, we would have less than three false detections in 24 hours. That's the accuracy we are looking for. And we can do that all within a one megabyte memory. And uh, the value proposition behind having all of that uh, in there is just to kind of give you an idea. If you needed like a ARM core running at a gigahertz to do speech processing, we would be running the same process at about 50 megahertz on our DSP. So almost a factor of 20. Uh, so, and that directly translates into power consumption. Obviously, Tensilica cores don't provide the same level of efficiency Srivastava is describing out of the box. Application engineers must tune the system for the end use case. For Cadence Tensilica customers, this process is simplified by the availability of custom instructions. One of the things that's, that's unique about Tensilica is its ability to use a tie or these instruction extensions. Says Adam Abed, Director of Product Marketing at Cadence and a former Knowles employee. Knowles uses that extensively to kind of really customize and build uh, very efficient floating point processing. Um, and so uh, together we've kind of, you know, built this, this really nice unique product uh, that's able to do uh, not only deliver kind of high quality audio from the, from the MEMS and microphone standpoint, but also be able to do some things like cleanup or voice trigger in a super low power manner without waking up most of the system. To maximize both power efficiency and AI performance, the wake up process Abed mentioned is usually implemented in phases depending on the system. As his colleague Yaipin Liu, Director of Product Engineering at Cadence explains, IP like the Hi-Fi 5, 5 requires. So it's a combination of traditional DSP plus, um, plus capability for process the, uh, the, the neural network itself. And the first layer is, um, is to detect if there's actually any voice. Um, so, so that's a very, very lightweight um, basically is a, is a, a voice activity detection. If, if it detects the, there is voice, then you wake up the next layer of processing. This is called what we call the uh, uh, keyword spotting or voice trigger. Um, so that can be a pretty lightweight processing. 
it just says, you know, I heard, I heard a word that sounds like what I'm listening to. It could take 50 megahertz. So, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, it, it, like everything, it depends. Yeah, it, it really depends. And when it comes to AI and ML technology evaluation, it really depends. Of course, determining how many megahertz, how much power consumption, keyword detection accuracy, and other key performance indicators of an intelligent audio system vary from design to design. Lou went on to explain that this variety makes it difficult to gauge the viability of smart voice system components, even DSPs, because metrics like the Terra operations per second, or TOPS, don't actually matter when dealing with highly specialized DSPs. If you can do a thousand TOPS, but all the operations are the wrong type, it may need, you know, um, it may need like 200 megahertz to process a, a certain type of mm. processing. Um, well, if you have the right instructions, even though it's same number of tops, but it takes, for example, 50 megahertz instead of 200 megahertz. So essentially you have more um, effective. Recently though, ML Commons has looked to simplify the process of evaluating edge AI components by teaming with EEMBC on a new system level benchmark, MLPerf Tiny Inference. As the latest in a series of training and inferencing benchmarks from ML Commons that span from cloud to edge, MLPerf Tiny Inference currently provides a standard framework and reference implementation for four use cases keyword spotting, visual wake words, image classification, and anomaly detection. The MLPerf Tiny workloads are designed around a pre-trained 32-bit floating-point reference model, which Kobe Branbury, PhD student in the Edge Computing Lab at Harvard University, and MLPerf Tiny Inference Working Group co-chair, identifies as the current golden standard for accuracy. However, MLPerf Tiny Inference offers a quantized 8-bit integer model as well. What sets MLPerf Tiny apart as a system-level benchmark is its flexibility, which helps avoid single-point performance assessments of compute performance, for example, by allowing organizations to submit any component within an ML stack. This includes compilers, frameworks, or anything else. But being too flexible can be a negative when it comes to benchmarks, as you can very quickly end up with multiple vectors that aren't related. MLPerf Tiny addresses this through two different divisions, open and closed, which provides submitters and users with the ability to measure ML technologies for a specific purpose or against each other. We, we have, I mean, MLPerf in general has this uh, large set of rules. There's these two different divisions. There's the open and the closed division. Um, and it, it sort of came out of this, this sort of constant pulling factor in benchmarks between like flexibility and comparability. And so the closed benchmark is something that's much more comparable. You take a pre-trained model and then you're allowed to implement it onto your hardware in a like equivalent manner that, that is equivalent to the reference model um, based on some specific rules that, that have been outlined. Um, and so that's really like a one-to-one -one comparison of hardware platforms. But you know, the, the landscape of TinyML, it, you know, requires so much efficiency and it, it, so many software vendors or even hardware vendors um, provide a value at all these different points in the stack. And so um, for people to be able to say, show that they have a better, better model design or that they might be able to provide, you know, better data augmentation or, or whatnot um, at the training phase or something, or even, you know, different types of quantization, whatnot. That's where the open division allows you to essentially just, you, you are given the task, you know, that is our use case. Um, and you have to, you know, solve it in, in whatever manner, uh, you know, whatever sort of target you want. And so we, we measure accuracy, latency, and energy, optionally energy. Okay. And so you're allowed to hit whatever optimization point. In short, the closed division lets users evaluate ML components on specific characteristics, while the open division can be used to measure a portion or the entirety of your solution. In the open division, models, training scripts, datasets, and other parts of the reference implementation can be modified to fit the submission requirements. But back to voice, 
The ultimate goal of audio AI is the ability to perform full-blown natural language processing completely at the edge. Of course, this requires a lot more processing capability, a lot more memory, a lot more power, and a lot more cost than the market is ready for today. And uh, I would say we're still maybe two years away from, from true natural language at the end. Says Nilsa Srivastava. So, so having some of these local commands or, or the built-in capability, I think is the next thing. So uh, that's where we are seeing our, our, our success right now is, is on low power battery-based devices. Uh, I think that is still in a way in its early days uh, because uh, uh, you, know, uh, you need a lot of resources for natural language understanding at the edge. Uh, this is uh, still the domain of the cloud. Uh, so over the last five years, we still haven't seen a lot of natural language come to the edge. Um, uh, but, you know, definitely we are getting subset of, you know, uh, context specific commands uh, moving towards the edge. Uh, and I think we'll see more and more of that uh, as they fit in some of the embedded uh, uh, processors. AI processing engines are being developed that promise to execute voice activation, recognition, and keyword spotting more efficiently, and enable more advanced natural language-based workloads at the edge. In fact, Knowles and Cadence are both actively developing such solutions. But in the short to midterm, there is still a need to make local decisions like voice trigger validation in real time while consuming less power. So with their legacy of efficient floating point processing on streaming data, why not try traditional DSP for novel new applications? And if you're not sure, there's a benchmark for that. Thanks for listening to this edition of Embedded Insiders. For daily news, videos, and podcasts, visit our website at embeddedcomputing.com.